Welcome to the Leadership Exposé podcast. This podcast is for leaders at diverse levels and organizations around the world who are seeking to scale and transform their leadership to level up their business and to create an impact in the lives of people all around them. Business topics, trends, innovation, and the intersection with leadership is the focus. We enable success. I'm your host, Stephen Paul. In this episode, we meet a seasoned entrepreneur who has extensive history of starting, financing, and managing companies, primarily in the oil and gas sector. A consistent advocate for the oil and gas industry, he has been published in Marine and Petroleum Geology, CBC, and the Toronto Sun, amongst other publications, where he's highlighted industry innovations and driven and influenced conversations for sustainable approach to energy independence in Canada. We welcome Michael Bignon, president and founder of Questair Energy Corporation, an international energy exploration, technology, and innovation company headquartered in Canada. And Michael is also the chairman of the board at High Arctic Energy Services. He has previously held various executive board roles. Today, we'll learn about Michael's journey and how he's influencing and shaping carbon technology and energy transformation in Canada and globally, the areas that companies need to focus on in today's world. Welcome, Michael. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you, Stephen. Nice. Thank you for having me here. Wonderful. Michael, we, just before we uh, we started the show, you know, we shared something in common. I'm actually from, from Toronto and uh, um, I'm living here in the UK. But tell us briefly where you're based. Well, I, I'm born in Calgary, and I'm currently living here. I've I've lived in a couple other places, including Toronto, uh, over my over my lifetime. But uh, I'm I'm happily settled back in my hometown of Calgary, Alberta. Awesome, I've I've just been there once, and it's such a beautiful city. <laughs> yeah, I I love Calgary. It's uh it's like like uh, Oslo, it's a world energy center, but but very small city so extremely livable but but nonetheless with world uh glo global career opportunities but in a very livable city yeah no wonderful michael tell us um, a little bit briefly about your your personal and professional journey how that has intersected and how you're creating success along the way right well i um I, I have on the on the Myers Briggs the ENTP personality, which they which they call the uh, the entrepreneur or 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 also the debater. My friends would probably say it's more like the debater, but I prefer the they say it's the entrepreneur. Um, but I I went in, I went in originally into accounting and tax uh, in part to uh, try to uh, you know get get the background and training in in more linear kind of thinking. And so that's really where I started, and I and I have to tell you, I think that the you know professional accounting degree and the tax the tax specialization has been incredibly helpful throughout my business career. Uh, that that having been said, I'm, I'm I'm pretty glad I got away from that when I was about 28 years old, and and ended up getting into entrepreneurial startup and turnaround. And so I've really been since 28 years old involved in startups and in turnarounds and still and still am today so I, I i that that's definitely been what i've like and and, and not just in for profit i've i've done uh, a number of startups and turnarounds in the not-for-profit sector too wonderful wonderful and um what's your current focus at the moment well i'm i'm um i i'm i, I would say i'm focused on a on a couple of different business opportunities a couple of them in the 
oil and gas sector, uh, both in, in bringing on some, what I would call some leading edge resource type projects. We're, we're, I'm also involved in Papua New Guinea, where I think we've been able to really do some very innovative things on bringing along indigenous populations and, 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 and really innovative ways of looking at safety programs, which uh, we've we've looked to try to export to other places. I think we you know we probably we think we have the world's record in terms of rig safety in in Papua New Guinea with ninety percent plus uh, indigenous staff. So we're really proud of that. And and then more recently, I've got into um, social license, both on the not for profit side of advocating for um, you know a, a reasoned conversation on energy and other options for global environmental problems versus. You know what? You know really what I think are twentieth century ideas that you know the only choice is either to ban it, block it, or 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 business as usual. I I think that's a false choice, and so we've been doing that there. But also in in my for profit life, we have some some you know innovative ways I think of exploiting some reservoirs on a near zero emissions basis that we've been really excited about too. So that there's a real crossover there between not for profit advocacy as well as our for profit you know, zero emissions energy hubs. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm actually pretty um, excited about all that. Um, I, I also own a heli ski lodge, which, which um, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm having a lot of fun with as well. Michael, that's pretty diverse from tax and fi financial aspects, which is really helpful as a platform to oil and gas to several other components areas or di diversified business opportunities that you're you're pursuing that's that's amazing yeah i thank you and i i have a lot of fun i i mean i did a couple of stops i i, I went in after tax and accounting i actually went into the high-tech industry and i was doing high-tech startups for quite a few years uh you know in the end what i found is that i think one of the most exciting areas for new technology right now is in the energy sector okay so let's let's talk a little bit more about um, energy and uh, you know some of these interesting projects that you're working on carbon technology. I think you've mentioned um, when we talk about carbon technology, I think we all recognize that it's you know a group of existing and emerging technologies, as you as you put it. Um, they're rapidly transforming the oil and gas to low emissions energy, and when we talk about carbon tech I've, I've also been reading that um you know the different components you know there's a the carbon ca capture there's the carbon sequestration and carbon technology elements of it so in your views which areas are you really focusing on within carbon technology is it just one particular strand or the, is it the wider ecosystem of it well i think if you want to be uh if you want to be zero or near zero emissions energy you have to do all of it and you know, I think there's some parts that uh, are, you know, the, the the idea that we can capture CO2 streams and and pump them back under the ground and sequester them. I mean, we, we've been doing this with recycling of natural gas for decades. So this is not necessarily new technology, but it, it is an, a new approach to to our missions. I, I think I think the other thing that is not really new, but of course, the technology is always evolving rapidly is in the efficiencies area the it's it's quite amazing today that the the quality of just piping and valving and 
and SCADA control and the introduction of artificial intelligence to be able to monitor and predict and prevent, you know, methane leaks or other emissions, you know, th these are all just like everywhere is all advancing rapidly too. The, the real emerging area, and it's not really new science, it's old science, it's organic chemistry. I always think organic chemistry is super cool. Um, and, and we've certainly un well understood the process which we've mostly allowed mother nature to do, which is to take carbon, CO2, which is a building block for so many organic materials. And, you know, you add sunlight, water and carbon dioxide, and you can create all kinds of things, whether it's living things, plants, forests, people, whatever, but also so many different industrial minerals that we use, whether calcium carbonate, magnesium carbonate, or, you know, carbon pitch, or there's, you know, dozen alcohols, I mean, methanols and ethanols, I mean, all of these things can all be, and in fact, all are made, you know, with CO2 as the base. So we we certainly have understood this science for a long time. What's emerging incredibly rapidly is the ability to take those processes, natural processes, and put them inside a plant and be able to take CO2 and not put it back under the ground, but actually use it as a feedstock and recycle it into useful products. And of course, we've seen this so many times before. Like, I mean, cardboard used to be garbage and now we routinely recycle. I mean, the, you know, Tin cans used to be garbage, and now we re routinely recycle them into useful products. So we've seen so many times over the last decades where something that was nothing, you know, but waste uh, turned into a useful feedstock product. And and I think we're I think it's happening. This energy transformation is happening right in front of our eyes, yeah. and quite rapidly. And I think we're going to see more and more of these carbon recycling technologies becoming being commercialized in the near future. And and is that one of your main differentiating factors of how you're offering your yeah business? well the pro we have we have two yeah. projects one we've proposed for Quebec which you know for for all of all of our you know my stated leadership and social license and zero emissions energy hubs the government of Quebec thank thank me for my proposal for a zero emissions natural gas hub by by saying we're going to expropriate your discovery so this this of course was this is this is very discouraging that. You know everything that that you know environmentalists and the government said they wanted, we gave them. And no sooner than we gave it to them, they said, "Oh, just kidding, we're going to expropriate it from you." But we've got another one in Utah, and another you know near zero emissions production hub. Uh, so we're following following it up there too. But it takes all of it. Uh, our project in Quebec was basically saying we will produce all the natural gas you know, using hydroelectricity and modern SCADA control systems and vapor vapor recovery systems, and we'll get to a zero, near zero production. What was exciting about that project, because we're doing that in Utah too, and many people are doing that in Colorado and Alberta and other places around the world, are, are you know, these, these zero emissions production is is coming fast. Even the oil sands is, it, with yeah. their pathways project is on their way to becoming a zero emissions production. What we were doing in Quebec that was well and above beyond that is we were we were going to pipeline that gas to an industrial hub with a CO2 return line. And we were going to put CO2 recycling like cement additive plants and hydrogen plants in that industrial park so that we could not just produce the gas with zero emissions. We could consume it with zero emissions too. It was a world's first. And um, you know, I, you know, the independent studies that we've done you know, indicate that our overall environmental impacts would be less than wind and solar and even hydro.
Yeah, amazing, Michael. What's in your in your view? What's what are some of the challenges associated with decarbonizing or transitioning into a more sustainable energy future? And this is more of a global view. Yeah, well, you know, my daughter asked me, so well, Dad, if if you can capture and recycle carbon into useful products like industrial yeah. alcohols or industrial minerals or or you know even high-tech products like carbon nanotubes or things like that like why aren't we doing it already and you know i said well the simple answer is there's never been a deposit on the on the on the tin right and, or the can of coke and you know I, when i was young we never recycled these things and until until there was an incentive to do it um and so you know even you know industrial industrial businesses never used to gather their car their cardboard and put it into a separate bin until somebody paid them ten dollars a ton to do it so that's that's one thing I would say is we do need what I would say carbon, you know, carbon pricing systems. We need consumers saying, yes, we are prepared to pay a little bit more for lower emissions energy. And and then we need we need effective um, carbon pricing systems that incentivize people to make these investments. Yeah. And and what I would say, the problem with sort of the first go around in um it's certainly in canada has been that they went with a penalizing system you know we're going to penalize you with the tax if you use carbon the, the problem with that is it never gave anybody an incentive to stop i mean it gave it gave you the incentive. well i don't want to pay the penalty but it never gave anybody the incentive to invest in the technologies that could could allow you to could keep you know could keep consuming your um you know without without um having to have the, the emissions right so I would say that's one. The, the main thing I would say are, um, you know, carbon pricing models that provide incentives to business to apply new technology. Excellent, Michael. What are the what are the types of conversations you are hearing or driving at the executive level and at the board level as you're progressing with your vision? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think. Um, you know, it took it took something for me to change my mind. You know, you know, business as usual is pretty comfortable, yeah. um, and so I would say the kinds of conversations we have are within our own industry. Uh, you know, can we do this? And and I would say no, we can't. Not with not with you know twenty, not, not with nineteen ninety nine technology, we can't. Not without some sort of incentive system, we can't. And so I think there's a certain mindset within the industry to say, well, hey, given everything I know from the past how are we going to do this and so i think convincing them with you know with new incentive systems and with new technologies we can do it is is you know, how do we get away from business as usual i have to frankly give some credit to environmentalists i mean if environmentalists hadn't have blocked the production of our natural gas discovery in quebec initially in 2010 i wouldn't have completely rethought the way we do things yeah. um you know what I'm disappointed now is to find that in 2022, 10 almost 12 years later, we read we did rethink completely the way we do things, and what we find is there are some of these environmentalists that are just stuck in the past, and you know some of them just haven't had a new idea in 50 years. Like all they want to do is ban and block, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean by definition, how is banning and blocking things progress? I mean banning books was never progress, right? So how how are we thinking that banning is going to be progress? What we needed was new technology. And what we're also finding is that there are some people that are saying, look, we we don't, you know, 
we think the big problem is capitalism creating too much consumerism and you know too much growth and you know so private enterprise like yours coming up with a solution for global environmental problems that's that's the last thing we want you know we want government solutions so we're you know one of the one of the groups we're fighting with in quebec are people that i think as i said i think a they're trapped in the past mm -hmm. um in the you know you know 20th century solutions on the environment but b they really don't want to see private enterprise solutions they don't want to see that innovation happen they want government to take control yeah it's, it's it's a shift in mindset as well, right? And that influencing of those groups of people. And I like the way you actually mentioned, uh, even about yourself, uh, there is a business as usual and you can continue with that and you can go on with that last century mindset, but then there is this new mindset that you need to bring into play and bring that element of transformation as well and that influencing. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I, I think that's, 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 a, that's a very important aspect for companies as well. And often it takes something disruptive to convince people to change from business as usual. And that's what that's what had to happen to me. I, I got disrupted by environmentalists. What I would really say, though, is that there are companies like ours who said, OK, I get it. Uh, business as usual is not going to work, so I have to change. Uh, there are environmentalists. There's a lot of what I call solutions-oriented environmentalists. They're saying, listen, we just want to see a solution for emissions. We don't we don't care if oil and gas wins. We don't care if solar wins. We don't we don't care if they all win. We just want to see a solution to emissions. And and this is starting to, you know, the, the conversation is starting to change with progressive or, you know, future oriented environmentalists, you know, together with progressive oriented business and even governments that are that are starting to say, hey, we could converge on new 21st century technology to solve these problems. And, and that's all focus on getting rid of the emissions, which, you know, so you don't have to get rid of oil and gas. You just have to get rid of the emissions. Yeah, agreed. Michael, share with us a story that comes to your mind from your time as a, a senior leader or, you know, even in your current, current roles that has resulted in a highly positive outcome. I know you touched on a few, but is there anything broadly that you'd like to summarize? Well, let's let's not use the Quebec expropriation of my discovery as an example <laughs> of a highly positive outcome. So, you know, and, and that was something that we put we put a lot of effort into. And I and I and I and I hope it'll still be a catalyst for change, you know, you know, like even as they kind of martyr our project. But um yeah, so I, I guess you know we've done a lot, lot of startups that um, you know. You know, I would I say when you get into startups that uh, you know the majority of them don't succeed, right? Mm. But uh, but many do, and they do they they make change, right? They change things. I I I think probably one of the changes that we've done that I've done that I've been most most proud of is is making a big effort in a developing country like Papua New Guinea mm -hmm. that we were going to change the external expatriate foreign company culture of that, you know, local people, uneducated, um, just can't do this work. And we said, well, we're going to teach them. And I mean, this is a true story. We, we took that project over 15 years ago. And our first move was to say that the local nationals who many of whom literally were in grass huts, their job mm -hmm. the day before was growing yams on the side of the hill in the, in the jungle. Um, you know, we were now putting, and we said, we are going to bring them into the camp. And people said, you can't do that. Uh, and I, well, we're going, well, why can't you bring them in the camp? Well, they don't know how to use a toilet. They don't know how to, 
They don't know basic hygiene. They don't know these things, right? They all live in the jungle. And we said, well, we'll teach them. And that was, that turned out to be a novel idea. So if you can imagine that, that we as a private company, the very first training program we had was on how to use a toilet, how to use a shower, mm -hmm. how to wash your hands before you go into the cafeteria to eat. And that was our first training program. It went on to there to basic sort of grade three numeracy was one of our next programs. And um, anyways, the, the way interesting today is when we go to our camp today, there is still, um, there's still an employee outside the cafeteria that, you know, signs you in and out of the cafeteria, but also checks to make sure you wash your hands. Um, so yeah. that's still a vestige of that original training program. But what we're really proud of now is that over 90% of our workforce is Indigenous. And we now have, um, you know, at the heart, like our rig, our rigs are the heart of a half a billion dollar operation. These are very, mm. very serious, like very large capital operations and very, you know, very sophisticated and, and have a lot of different safety issues when you're, when you're drilling, you know, for high pressure oil and gas. We've now got the assistant driller, which is which is the same thing as saying the assistant manager of the entire operation. They're now indigenous people. This is an incredible, we think an incredible accomplishment. And we've done it with the world's best safety record. We we have the least reportable incidents. We have the least lost time incidents of any oil and gas operation in the world. That that is indeed a really positive outcome. And it's it's amazing that you've actually transformed that uh, that 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 stream. So well done. Um, yeah, my, no, my we're just really super proud of that. Yeah, it, it it's amazing, and it's it's something to to share broadly across the world as well. And it's um, you know from as you mentioned, from you know people living in in huts to actually teaching, training, and making that more sustainable. And would you say that 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 that, that is more sustainable at this point? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it gets back to the conversation we just had before. And of course, being in startups and turnarounds, mostly one of my mm -hmm. skills is change management, right? Um, but again, it comes back to business as usual. I mean, I, I grew up, uh, my first jobs were in the rig business in, in Alberta as a student. And, and you know, we had an attitude to, we, we had an attitude that was highly encouraged of being get it done people. Yeah. And safety was something you got around so you could get it done. And basically I had no, you know, everything I was taught when I was, you know, 19 years old, 20 years old in this business was you keep yourself safe. Don't count. You don't trust the company to keep you safe. You trust yourself to keep you safe. This, and, 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 and by the way, you trust yourself to keep it safe. You work your way to get around the company safety uh, so you can get it done. And that, that was a, that was, I mean, that was an attitude that we were all, I was very proud of myself for that attitude. Yeah. You know, I'm a get it done guy and I keep myself safe and I don't trust the company to do that. I trust myself that sort of, you know, pioneer attitude almost. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It took me a long time, you know, to, to realize that, and, and I, and I, I don't want to be a little bit facetious, but you kind of, I've now realized if you want to keep your workers safe as a company, you've got to make it, dummy proof or idiot proof mm -hmm. and the reason you have to do that is because you know there's such a lack of common sense in people and 
And I don't want to, you know, our workers are great people, but, you know, sometimes they, you know, like all of us, we have those off days where we can be a bit of a dummy and make a stupid mistake. And that's where the company has to make sure that you have created a culture of following good practices and that we have to find that. And what we really focus on in all of our safety culture now is, okay, so how do we get this done? But how do we get it done in a way that it's not just safe most of the time? It's safe every time, right? And that's 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 the sigma six. You know, we have to be safe nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine times out of a million, and and so we now challenge those get it done people in our business. You show us how to get this done on a sigma six safety basis, and that's that's going to be our new procedure. And it's a way of life. It's, yeah, it, 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 it really is. Built in, it yeah. really is. You've got to build it into yeah. the, the entire culture of the organization. And I have to tell you, it's hard. It's hard to get rid of that business as usual because lots of people in in our in our different in businesses in different places had that same pride that I always had. Of yeah. yeah, but don't worry, I'll keep myself safe. I don't need the company to keep me safe. And and by the way, I'll get it done. I'll be your best employee type of thing. Right? And so how do you how do you take something that people are, you know, have good reason to be proud of? They're trying to be a good worker. How, how do you change that culture to, well, yeah, but what we want is something that is not going to just that you're going to be safe every time. We want every one of our workers to be safe every time. Yeah. And and you're a driving force and a leader behind that, Michael. Well, I have to tell you, we the hired, top, we but, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. certainly hired the people, but but yeah. there's no question I, I have a big belief in tone at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you can't have your workers on the rigs saying, I'm going to change my approach to safety. If you think for a second that the CEO or the chairman of the board are not behind you. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Michael, tell us a little bit more about, um, pandemic and the challenges in the business world as a result of that. Um, how yeah. do you view things are bouncing back or do you still view that as as a big challenge in comparison to some of the other systemic risks yeah um well i i guess i guess the main point of the government reaction to the pandemic um and the pandemic itself was that it hurt you know some industries a lot while other industries never did better. Um, You know, sadly, the business of government never did better. I mean, everybody getting paid full time to work from home or be on furlough. I mean, so, uh, you know, this, this was, this was something that was very unevenly, you know, we know, we know that, uh, you know, GDP was down X percent, but you know, what people are not realizing is, is that all of that X percent fell on a very narrow group of people. Right. Yeah. Um, and those people, I think, you know, the energy industry is one of them. Uh, m- many, many companies uh, failed, uh, no longer no longer with us. I mean, we all know with the high price of oil and gas today mm-hmm. that there's many companies doing extremely well. What people are forgetting, yeah, because they were the best companies that could survive $30 oil and, and, were, and, and, and a complete loss of liquidity. There was no, you know, we have a divestment movement. We've had an, you know, an anti-oil and gas policy, uh, you know, you know, in in the entire Western world. 
um, you know, there's it's it's a it's been a lot against the, the you know our industry, and I don't want to just say it was oil and gas. There was other industries that were hurt very badly too. Um, but in any event, uh, you know what I would say is that the under the chronic underinvestment in oil and gas, you know, due to anti oil policy and anti investment advocate you know advocacy combined with the the crunch of of you know world crisis in ukraine or covid whatever i mean it it all means now that we have way fewer companies with way less capital trying to supply a world with energy that it really needs and you know this is where i've become very dedicated to say look our world it's become clear we we, we can't live without this energy um the human condition requires affordable energy. It requires affordable food. We need affordable housing. We need affordable food. We need affordable clothing. And we need affordable energy. Like those are just the basics of life. And we have to find a way to provide our people that. And given the global environmental challenges, we have to find a way to do it with a hell of a lot less emissions and impacts. And I and all I'm saying is with 21st century technology, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Michael, outside, let's shift focus here. Let's talk about you. So outside of the professional day-to-day, -day, what, what interests do you, uh, do you like the most or what are you well, I mean, you know, on? I'm, I, I, you know, I, I love, I love my couple annual heli helicopter ski trips at my helicopter lodge. I, I like yeah. uh, my annual fishing trip up to the lodge. It's one of the most remote lodges in the world up in Quenelle Lake. Uh, I'll just plug silver tip heli skiing for a moment. I get, I think I bought it because I think it is, it is, I thought it could be, and I think it now has become the best skiing you can do in the world. It's also among some of the best fly fishing, hiking, um, yeah. just one of the most amazing places to be in the world up in, in British Columbia. Um, so I enjoy that. I, I enjoy golfing. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time. I go golf with my wife a lot. Um, I got young grandkids. That's that's a lot of fun. I mean, there's a, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot great about getting older, but grandkids is one of them. <laughs> yeah. And I'm definitely going to make that. Uh, I've made a note of that, um, you know, heady ski resort in uh, BC. That you know, that I, I might come there and uh, experience it myself. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Well, you'd you'd certainly be welcome, and um, you know, we'd be happy happy to have you. Of course, it's uh, as I said, I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the best ski experiences you can have. Wonderful, and. In a day, what 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 does the day in the life of Michael look like? Well, it, it tends to change, but um, you know, here I am at home, for example, because uh, you know, just circumstances change for me today. But uh, so that's that's one that's one thing that came out of the pandemic is uh, that uh, it's it's uh, you know, certainly far from it's not inconceivable at all that you can get your workday done from home now, right? But um, I still prefer to be at the office, and I would say my typical day is, you know, you know, at the office around eight thirty or so, and you know, I have a couple of couple of daily meetings that I I try to get into. On we we have an I I'm executive director of an advocacy group for the energy industry called Modern Miracle. I have a I have a um, you know standing meeting on that, um, and and then after after that, I would say every day is different. I don't know if I'm going to be doing a podcast or if I'm going to be meeting investors or if I'm going to be talking to donors or if we're going to be, or if I'm going to be talking to you know reporters. I mean, every every day is different. Yeah. So you've touched upon quite a few business and uh, personal adventures. Is there anything new or 
any next big business or personal adventures for you that you're uh, that's on the horizon for you? Well, I think one of the biggest things is, you know, our next big thing is going to be to carry on the fight in Quebec on our gas discovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we're we're of the view from a natural justice point of view, but also just a rule of law, investor protection, fair trade mm-hmm. point of view that expropriating somebody's asset confiscating in fact confiscating somebody's discovery that they spent 20 years and you know away you know in the hundreds of millions to discover over a 20-year period is just it's just you know defies natural justice and you might say well you know there could be some uh, public utility um you know social good you know, we're going to ban oil and gas, but that's not what that government did. The government, the government didn't actually ban oil and gas. Mm-hmm. They, they said, we're going to take away your permits. There's mm-hmm. nothing that stops the government from producing that asset themselves tomorrow. So that's a little bit of a red herring, but, 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 but secondly, and, and this is where I really want to have the fight, um, you know, in, and, and have our day in court on this fight is to say our project is lower global environmental impacts than business as usual in Quebec. It's now you, the government of Quebec, and you, Engos of Quebec, that are stuck in the 20th century, believing without thinking about it, just a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, us banning natural gas is good for the environment. Well, not the way we were doing it. And we want to have that, we want to have that battle to say there was, there is in fact no public utility. There is no social good being done here. In fact, it's just the opposite. You are damaging the world environment by not yeah. getting with the times. And, and we think we'll win that debate. Uh, we think we'll be able to, you know, we think we can win that debate in our day in court. And we think the result of that will be that under the rule of law um, in Canada, if there is no public utility to this, that it's not constitutional for you to confiscate somebody's asset for no money. And, we we you know we think that asset is worth billions of dollars, and we think our shareholders deserve that money for everything they've done. Yeah, Michael, we're coming to a close. Um, share with us any closing messages or a challenge to other leaders on leadership, life, key lessons, anything of interest, business or personal. Yeah, well, I think I think the the main the main thing for me is. You know, for for if you're if you're a business leader, I mean, I think I think that you really have to think seriously about you know what tone do you want to create at the top? What's the culture of the organization that you want to have? Mm-hmm. I I really think that if you're going to lead any organization, you have to think, you know, what's the purpose? And and making money is often what some people think the purpose of a company is. And I don't think that's right. I think I think that the purpose of an organization is to deliver some value to somebody. And, and how we measure whether you're fulfilling your purpose is whether people are willing to pay you money for it. I mean, if I'm, if I'm doing something for you, you should be willing to pay me money for that, right? Uh, but if I'm not delivering value for you, then you wouldn't. So I think we just have to make sure as leaders that we fundamentally understand what is the purpose of our organization? Why do we exist? What are we? What are we trying to do for other people? And and yes, uh, you know, just like I, 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 you know, in, in our project in Quebec, I want to show you know our our purpose was to be 
was to find uh, a, you know a giant energy source and and then to be world's leaders in 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 the way we exploit it environmentally and if we're and if we were doing that then i i expect we should be financially rewarded for that because we did great things for people but i guess that's my main thing would be to say you know what's your purpose and what are you doing every day to create a culture that is working to fulfill that purpose and and use the profitability as a measurement that you're doing a good job of it wise words from michael and his leadership and vision and on making the impossible possible michael thank you very much for being with us today and sharing your vision and your journey thank you oh yeah thank you Steve. it's nice to have nice to have me on i appreciate it wonderful okay folks thank you very much for listening in and stay tuned for our next episode on international trade and the role of the modern and learning board on this topic and on international business expansion thank you and have a wonderful day